And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. I have the passage for you on the insert. Acts 2. We left off with Peter delivering the model Christ-centered gospel sermon here in Acts chapter 2. The chapter starts with a sizable group of believers. That's important to note. They're believers who are waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Then, over time, as this event happens, a much bigger crowd who are in close proximity, unbelieving Jews who were there for Passover, unbelieving meaning they didn't believe in the Messiah at this point. They had heard the message preached, they were there for the Passover previous, a month earlier, but now all sorts of things had come to pass, namely the death of Jesus, his resurrection, and his time with them before his ascension, the promise of the Holy Spirit, And now these believers are receiving the Holy Spirit and signs are accompanying the coming of the Holy Spirit. These tongues of fire and then, of course, they're speaking in other languages. People watching this who don't believe say they're drunk. And Peter calls them out in his sermon and says, they're not drunk at all. Let me tell you what's happening. And then he goes into this sermon, this Christ-centered sermon where he preaches the gospel, thorough message of Christ. What we have now in the passage before us is the last verse of that sermon, verse 36, and then the immediate response. And here we find um, what power the message of the preached gospel has. Um, This is describing what happened, but there is a certain example we have here of what often happens when the message of the gospel is preached. Here now as I read God's holy word, Acts 2, starting at verse 36 I will stop at verse 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, please grant your Spirit's illumination so that we can understand and apply your holy word this morning and hereafter for that matter. Please make the meaning of this passage clear to us. Please build up every person in this place on this day as we place ourselves under the preaching of your word. And if I should say something that does not accord with your word, please cause the listeners to forget it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have in this passage what happens immediately after Peter's sermon, immediately after a biblical gospel message is given. Now, it's not always like this when the message is preached from the pulpit or you share it, but this is often how God brings people to himself is through this approach. The message goes out, he, the gospel's declared clearly and authoritatively, 
and God, by his spirit, brings people to himself. Here we have an episode in the early apostolic church's life, an example of what happens when the gospel is proclaimed with clarity. Uh, Peter preaches the gospel with full biblical clarity and authority, and then people are, as it says, cut to the heart, and then the church grows. Peter's preaching, as Kent Hughes said, was full of Christ, full of Scripture, and full of the Holy Spirit. And what we have is a bit of a demonstration, a timeless demonstration, about the efficacy or the effectiveness of the Word of God preached. It was about a year ago when several of our members took really a trip of a lifetime tour of Germany and Switzerland to retrace the steps of Martin Luther and the Reformers in general. The gift of the Reformation, among other things, was a restored preaching of the Word of God. Where the Bible is preached, where the gospel is proclaimed, the church grows. Now, sometimes the growth is in depth rather than width, but oftentimes it's both, as this message is proclaimed very clearly. Luther credited the preaching and teaching of the Word with igniting the Reformation. Listen to what he said, as only Luther could say it. I have opposed the indulgences of all the papists, this is his opposition to the Roman church of his day, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Wrote, he means he translated it literally. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. For it is almighty and takes captive the hearts, and if the hearts are captured, the evil work will fall of itself. He refers to the preaching of the word as being the reason the Reformation took root. Calvin, who built on Luther's legacy of preaching some years later, spoke of the necessity of preaching often. He said at one point, the church cannot be built up, that is to say, it cannot be brought to soundness or continue in a good state except by the means of the preaching of the word. So then, if we earnestly desire that God should be honored and served, and that our Lord should have his royal seat among us peaceably, to reign in the midst of us, if we are his people and are under his protection, if we covet to be built up in him and to be joined in him and to be steadfast in him to the end, to be short, if we desire our salvation, we must learn to be humble learners in receiving the doctrine of the gospel and in hearkening to the pastors that are sent to us. Now, of course, hearkening to the pastors who are sent to us is dependent on their faithfulness to the message of the biblical gospel. What we have in the passage, in just these few verses, a picture of the right message's result, the right message, the gospel, cuts to the heart and then is used by God to grow his kingdom. First, the right message. Verse 36 captures the sermon that Peter preaches. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's a summary of what comes from verse 14 down to verse 35. And that in itself, most scholars agree, is a summary of the sermon that Peter preached. And notice the audience, the house of Israel. So we're still talking about Jewish people who were gathered there over a month now since the time of the Passover from all, over, all sorts of nations. Jewish proselytes, no doubt. Some are believers, many are not. In fact, most are not who are hearing this sermon. 
What's the message? Lord and Christ. Lord is the sovereign one given authority by his Father because of the work he performed. Christ, meaning he's the anointed one, who is the sacrifice. It's the gospel in the title of his name, the Lord and Christ. But it's also capturing the full of the message that was given in the verses that precede. The word gospel means good news. Uh, This is the good news that Jesus has come to save us from our sins by his work on the cross. The right message that cuts to the heart is that message. There may be other convicting messages, compelling messages, motivating messages that are secondary or they're offshoots of that main message, but the message of the gospel is the one that cuts to the heart. It's the one the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate people, to born them again, as we say. And we see the reaction of the people in this passage as this statement is made. But verse 36, the one right before us immediately, it's the capstone of the biblical gospel message that Peter preached and we preach. And it's never too often that we would be refreshed about the particularness of that message, the simplicity of that message. In earlier verses, in a a most succinct form, Peter covers the full range of truth about Jesus. In the sermon, starting at verse 14 down to this verse, he speaks of Jesus' incarnation, becoming man, his sinless life that he lives in our stead, his suffering on our behalf, his death to pay for our sins, his resurrection that confirms God's acceptance of his offering of himself, his ascension, which is God receiving him to his right hand, and then his present ministry seated at the right hand of the Father. Peter covers it all in his sermon. It is the Christ-centered sermon of sermons. When that right message is preached, Jesus crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, it cuts to the heart. It cuts to our hearts. Even if you've been a believer a long time, when you hear it again, it cuts to us. It convicts us. It reminds us. It refreshes us. If you're not a believer and you hear that message, this is the message that God uses to make you a believer. In fact, when people are wondering, people ask me, sometimes I'll get an email Monday or a phone call, Pastor, I don't know if I am a believer. I'm not sure. I mean, I, you may be on the basis of your concern. Something's cut you to the heart. Something is, something is speaking to you. And I assume the, the word of God has done its work. Now, it's important for them to express what it is they believe. But for them to be that interested, that's the spirit that must make someone that concerned with their state. And of course, there's follow-up, and we see it in this passage, about what we would do if someone say, what do I do? I don't know what to do. They say it here, and we get an inkling of this. But recognize, it's the word of of the biblical gospel preached that cuts to the heart, and that's why it's so important to be about it regularly. Again, Luther, he's so colorful in so many ways and believed this uh, in the deepest part of his soul, and this is what drove him. Um, He spoke of the need to be preaching the gospel in the church. Remember, he was still a Roman Catholic priest when he came to these understandings and started to try to convince the other priests around him to preach this message of the gospel. Listen to what Luther wrote. Therefore, it must be a grievous sin not to listen to the gospel and to despise such a treasure and so rich a feast to which we are bidden. But it is a much greater sin not to preach the gospel and to allow so many people who would gladly hear it to perish. For Christ has so strictly commanded that the gospel and his testament be preached that he does not even wish the mass to be celebrated unless the gospel is preached. He's still in movement away from his understanding of what 
the, the Roman mass was compared to communion. He's saying, we got to preach the gospel above all things. He's, he's starting to see the need for this. He goes on, for this reason, it is so dreadful and horrible to be a bishop, pastor, and preacher in our times, for no one knows this testament any longer. I mean, the preachers themselves couldn't even tell you the gospel, which, by the way, still happens, and not just in Romanism. Not to mention that they ought to preach it, although this is their highest and only duty and obligation. They will certainly have to account for the many souls who perish because of such feeble preaching. So the message of the gospel, the biblical gospel, is the content that's preached by Peter that brings about this response we have in the text. And we should always be recalibrated about what the gospel is. All our members should be able to express the gospel is Jesus' forgiveness of our sins by his death in our place. We trust in Jesus' finished work. As simple as it is, that's the gospel message that we proclaim. So much of what becomes the main thing at churches is not really the gospel, though it's spoken of like it is, or it's spoken of like you have to believe this to belong. And it's not the gospel. A particular church's way, our particular way of doing things is not the gospel. Uh, The pastor is not the gospel. A good theology on its own is not the gospel. Social justice is not the gospel. Government is not the gospel. Democracy is not the gospel. Moralism, keeping rules and doing this or doing that, that's not the gospel either. Christian education models are not the gospel. Homeschooling is not the gospel. A certain kind of counseling is not the gospel. A particular style of worship is not the gospel. Feeding the poor is not the gospel. Receiving health and wealth is not the gospel. Money is not the gospel. Influence is not the gospel. Social causes are not the gospel. Pro-life messages are not the gospel. There is only one gospel, and the word of God declares it. Jesus Christ came to save sinners by his death and resurrection. We must believe on him to be saved and have eternal life. Now, many of the aforementioned causes are worthy. They may be biblical causes, but they are secondary to the gospel itself, the thing that is to be preached in primary in God's church and to the world. Our life's purpose and our practices in all these areas will be defined and guided by what we believe about the gospel. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, there's more to what comes in this follow-up, as you can see, starting in verse 37. There's what we might say a right response to the biblical gospel when it's preached, and we have an example of it in this first uh, Christ-centered sermon, uh, as explicit Christ-centered sermon. Certainly the sermons and lessons of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, but now with the finished work of Jesus behind them, we have this explicit Christ-centered sermon, and now the response. Verse 37, now when they heard this, Christ, the message of Christ, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now I want you to understand something so we can understand what comes next, the instructions Peter gives. There's a divine commentary here on what happened inside of them when they heard it. Peter doesn't know this. He preaches the message, and the next thing he hears is, what should we do? The passage is telling us, though, that they've been cut to the heart, so the Spirit has done his work. But Peter doesn't know that, and so if I preach a message and someone comes to me, what shall I do? I say, you have to repent and then be baptized. 
That's not for salvation. That's the evidence that the cutting of the, whole, the heart by the Holy Spirit has happened. So, again, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So first note the impact of God's word. It cuts to the heart. Um, Spurgeon liked the translation, it pricked their heart. Spurgeon says this, When we read they were pricked in their heart, we may see in it the meaning, that they felt a movement of love to him, a relenting of heart, a stirring of emotion toward him. They said to themselves, We have treated him like this? What can we do to show our horror for our own conduct? They're not merely convinced of their fault so as to be grieved, but their desires and affections went outwards and out towards the offended one, and they cried, what shall we do? In what way can we acknowledge our wrong? Cut to the heart. That means to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, convicted because of our sin. A cut to the heart has to, be, has to do with our being conscience-stricken in a spiritual way. When we're cut to the heart, we'll desire to do something. It will have response. It will have evidence that we really have been impacted by this conviction. And this first step of obedience is given as they manifest their salvation. Again, these are unbelievers. have not previously professed faith in in God's Messiah. Remember, Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are. They had to lay hold of the Messiah. They had to trust in God's promise for redemption through the Messiah. But these were people who were Jewish by ethnicity, but they didn't believe the message, or they would have understood the transference. Now they're starting to because the Holy Spirit's working through the preaching of the message. Peter said to them, repent, which means to turn, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the whole, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is the beginning of the Holy Spirit coming in this new and enhanced way. Repent and be baptized. Turn from your sin to Christ. Baptism was the declaration of the turning from sin and to Christ. Turning, turn away from sin, turning unto God. Now, notice something important here. Uh, Throughout the book of Acts, we'll have examples of baptisms, and we'll approach this each time it comes up, little little by little. Uh, Peter's not saying here that water baptism will save them. He is responding to their question about what to do. The text tells us they're cut to the heart, so we know they were born again after hearing the message. But Jesus, or but excuse me, Peter and the others don't know what's happened in their heart, as I mentioned already, unless they give outward expression. The way to give outward expression, especially for unbelievers, these are first generation, didn't grow up in the church, if you will. First generation, and here they are making this profession, and he says, you need to repent and be baptized. Baptism or excuse me, repentance is inward and outward. It means to turn from sin and unto God. It happens internally at first, but then it shows itself by what a person does. Baptism is inward and outward. It has to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It can't be seen except through evidences outwardly. Baptism marks outwardly what is an inward reality for those who believe on Christ. Repentance, therefore, is presented as identifying an individual with the remission of his or her sins even as baptism following a repentance provides an external identification. It's visible to others. Baptism is not the basis for salvation, but it proclaims it. We know it's not the basis because we read throughout the New Testament to the contrary. In Romans 4, verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. We're saved by faith in Christ. Abraham looked to God's salvation and believed and it was counted to him 
credited to him as righteousness. That's how we're saved. But then what happened? Abraham was commanded to be circumcised, and then every child after that. That becomes an important link to understanding the purpose and place of baptism in the New Testament. The gospel's preached, unbelievers come to Christ. It's a display of preaching of the gospel to an audience uh, like this of unbelievers, these people who did not previously believe in God's Messiah. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the basis for this repentance and baptism is Christ, the same person who their faith is placed in. And the outward sign of baptism pictures the work of Jesus applied to the believer. And this belief will mean that you will have the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says to that initial audience, just like the ones you've been mocking, the ones you've just been calling drunks, you'll receive the Holy Spirit too. Now, not by any means an exhaustive treatise on these things that are introduced here, Peter displays something else in the verses thereafter, verse 39 down to 41, that get, starts to give a right picture of several things that are mentioned or are, are happening. As these things happen in the book of Acts, then the apostle Paul and Peter, for that matter, and the gospel writers, they're writing the account of Christ, that those are the earliest books of the New Testament written, and then epistles that were written to explain some of the things people were seeing. So the book of Acts describes all these events. Paul then, in his writings, 13 books, he puts fine-tuning on the things they're seeing so they could understand what it is they're seeing. And so Acts is the history of it, and then the epistles are explanations of the things God was doing at that time and will do timelessly. That's what we have starting to unfold as Scripture is being written during this time of the book of Acts and its happenings being recorded. While not exhaustive now, what they're seeing is a right understanding start to be taught of the things they were seeing and experienced, starting to understand what it is that God was now doing. Look at verse 39. You'll see several things. You'll see that there is a, a covenantal illusion. There is a statement about God's sovereignty in this whole process. And then there's a bit of an insight about baptism starting to unfold before us. First, the covenantal element, as I'll call it. The language you probably noticed from the Old Testament, verse 39, the first part, for the promise is for you and for your children. That is a, a regular occurring statement in the Old Testament, talking from the time of Noah and his family, uh, it's a common way God works is through the family unit to bring his gospel message, and that's the most common way people even come to Christ. And it's not a bad thing at all. They grow up in Christian homes, and they always know Christ as their Savior. Now, there is some moment, some time that God knows where he draws a person to that saving faith, but there are many of you here that can't really remember that particular time. You just know that some moment or some, something happened to where you really started to understand this message of the gospel that you've grown up hearing and really cherishing. You never said you didn't believe it, but now you really lay hold of it. We put too much emphasis on the moment a person chooses Jesus because it's not even really good biblical language. The emphasis should be like right now on the present, who do you trust for your salvation? Because that's really what matters. Right now, who do you trust? Not, well, I prayed the prayer when I was six, should be, right now, do you lay hold of Christ? Do you rest in his finished work? 
Now, it's great to look back at our past and see moments, touch points where God really impressed himself upon us. Maybe you do have a moment. Well, no, I know distinctly it was from light to dark. I felt it. But most people actually don't have that experience. We're, we're kind of pressured sometimes to have, say we have that experience. But the reality is we've always believed or we have always felt like we have, and now it's crystal clear. It makes more sense to us. To you and your children is a common covenantal phrase that God uses with Israel to remind them of the blessings that are theirs as they receive them and as parents faithfully teach them. And it's borrowing this language to expand the picture of this because it's not just relegated to a nation anymore. Now it's to new Israel, if you will, the church, which is made up of all tribes and tongues. But it uses covenantal language. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Back in Genesis 17, when God was speaking to Abraham, establishing the Abrahamic covenant, which happens over the course of several chapters in Genesis. In Genesis 17, listen to the way God speaks to Abraham, and then think of this passage's language. In Genesis 17, 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's the picture of what would come in the book of Acts. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And shortly thereafter, he institutes the sign of circumcision to mark them out as his covenant people. But the passage before us, for this promise, this promise of the gospel, is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord God calls to himself. So there's a covenantal connection here in the language, but there's also something very important. The last phrase in verse 39, look at it. Everyone whom the Lord our God, God calls to himself. This reminds all of us that God is the one who gives salvation. He determines salvation. He gives it according to the good pleasure of his will. It's his own mystery as to how he applies it. Our responsibility is to proclaim the message. God is the one who brings about the results. Later in the book of Acts, we'll come up to a passage that really accents this. All these amazing things are happening in Acts. Missionary journeys are happening. People are coming to Christ. Converts by the hundreds and even the thousands like in the passage here. It's an amazing story to watch unfold. And it's the beginning of the kingdom's expansion. It's the establishment of the apostolic church. But from time to time, there's a little statement in there to remind us why this is happening and how it's happening. In the passage before us, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, that's who will come. Then in Acts 13, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's that constant checkpoint for us to remember who it is that saves. God has ordained that the message go out from the mouths of people. He he empowers it by his Holy Spirit. But we are to make no mistake that it's God's sovereign hand that determines how salvation is applied. And we really ought not stress about it. We should stress about, humanly speaking, whether we're faithful with preaching the message, but not how 
in who God brings. We should proclaim it and have confidence that it will do the exact work that God's called it to do. That frees us from desperation about it, but it also requires of us responsibility. It's a beautiful motivation that God gives us by making clear the message, showing what happens when the message is faithfully preached, and then reminding us that we didn't do it. Constantly, in God's grace, keeping us in our place, which is a good place of dependence upon him. Finally, I want to again allude to uh, what the passage says, at least in an initial way, about baptism. Much more to be said throughout the book of Acts, in the New Testament for that matter. Verse 41. So it's describing now what happened. Those who received his word, okay, they believed it. You follow what it's saying? They received his word, they believed it, were baptized. Some will make verse 38 out to be baptisms required for salvation. That's not taught anywhere else in Scripture. It's not taught there either. But here it even clarifies. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'll start the topic of baptism this way. We need to be careful about constructing the whole of our understanding of baptism just on one short passage in the book of Acts. To understand the purpose of baptism, we need to study the whole of Scripture. I try to give a bit of an explanation every time uh, we baptize someone, uh, but even there it's hard to give the whole of it. There's simplicity and complexity with the doctrine. There's no question. That's why it's been debated for so long. A baptism connects to the Old Testament as referred to throughout the New Testament. Uh, For this passage, this episode involves people who were previously unbelievers. In fact, almost all the accounts in in the New Testament, book of Acts anyways, are first-generation believers who had not believed before. Because of the covenantal language and the way that baptism is practiced going forward, we can rightly understand how the children of believers would have the sign applied to them as well. Remember, Abraham is circumcised and his children. Then we have Abraham is living in 2,000 2000 years before Christ, so we get to watch how the generations practice it after. The New Testament is done by 70 AD, so we don't have as much revelation history to watch how it then unfolds, except for to see how the early church practices it, which is important. Not biblical, not on the same level as the Bible, but important to show how it practically unfolds. As you probably know, Baptists, our brothers and sisters in Christ, see baptism as an an entirely new sign of the new covenant, and it's a sign really of the person's profession of faith. Whereas Presbyterians like us see baptism as an improved covenant sign that demonstrates the inclusion of Gentiles, and it's a sign of God's promise for anyone who believes. One's position on baptism is not a requisite for a Christian fellowship. I'm sure many of you, like me, have best friends who disagree on their view of baptism. Personally, I have an interesting background on this topic. I grew up Roman Catholic where it's believed that baptism is part of the road to salvation, essentially. Um, I was taught that baptism washed away original sin, and then there's several things you go through throughout life to help assure your right standing with Christ and his church. Um, I think that was a wrong view, having analyzed it these many years, over these many years. Then I went to a Protestant church uh, when I was in my late teen years that practiced the baptism of infants and started getting this answer about covenant and understanding how it connected the Old Testament. That made sense. Still, it was complex to me. Then I went to a college that argued hard for baptizing only those who were old enough to profess faith in Christ. They struggled to define what the status of a child was in a church, 
until they profess faith. Even though that child could be professing faith, it ended up becoming the adults had to determine their profession of faith was right, and then they would baptize them. So it wasn't believer's baptism. It's when the adults thought that they were believer's baptism. It was confusing to me, to say the least, but I greatly respected my teachers there and still do. Then I went to a seminary that taught covenant baptism. Then I finished another degree at a different institution that was even harder core about that same topic. And now I'm in a doctoral program at Midwestern Baptist Seminary. So I'm not giving you straw men. I really have sat under people who believe both views. And I basically learned two things. First, if you believe in the biblical gospel, you are saved and we are able to fellowship with anyone who believes that whenever they think you should be baptized. Second, and this won't surprise you, I think we got it right. That's it. Let's close. No, I I would say I think the covenantal view that Presbyterians hold, at least our brand of Presbyterian, takes into account the whole of Scripture, acknowledges our complexities, but I think in the end demonstrates uh, the best, most biblical understanding of how to apply baptism with respect to our brothers and sisters who are Baptists. I'm thinking of a couple passages even that happen in the, the book of Acts that we'll come across. Uh, the first one is in Acts 16, where there is a woman uh, named Lydia who comes to faith in Christ. She's a seller of purple, it says, who is a worshiper of God, it says in Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. It's a passing comment, it's quick, but her household, as a result of her coming to faith, seems to have been baptized. I know her Baptist brothers say, well, that must mean that each individual trusted in Christ and then they were baptized, but it doesn't say that. And households are very, uh, they're solitary, they're considered very unified in antiquity, the household. The leader makes a decision and the whole of the household comes under that. It's not so important what each personal testimony is as far as the application of the sign is concerned but rather this house has come under this. And that connects much better with the picture of circumcision in the Old Testament and how it is applied. One of the more vivid cases happens just a few verses after the example of Lydia when the jailer, uh, one of the jailers in Philippi, is charged with watching Paul and Silas. But in the middle of the night, uh, the Lord sends an earthquake and opens up the jail cell door. And he thinks that Paul and Silas have probably escaped, but realize they're still sitting there. And he's overwhelmed with the grace of God at that moment, because if they had escaped, they would have been killed. It says in Acts 16, verse 29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Slighting references, I know, but it shows some of the extension of thought that leads us to the conclusion and the practice that we have. Back to the point of these concluding verses to this sermon of Peter's that shows the, greatest, the response to the greatest sermon in the New Testament next to those of our Lord. This model Christ-centered gospel sermon, it provides a picture of what happens when the biblical gospel is preached faithfully. There is a right message that must be preached, and that message is Christ. When the message is preached, sinners repent and believe and are baptized. The church grows and the kingdom expands. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
James Boyce says, and I will close with this, says in his comments about this, he speaks very personally, or I should say spoke very personally. I long for a day when we will hear that cry in the church of Jesus Christ. I long for the day when preaching will be so biblical, so Christ-centered, so fearless, and so sound that men and women will cry out, oh brothers, sisters, what must we do? Let's bow together and pray. Father, give us the simplicity of the early church's approach to growing your kingdom. Give us strong, deep-seated, convicted, convinced trust in the power of your word and spirit. May we never falter from this pulpit or from any member in sharing the biblical gospel of the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ and his finished work. No matter what the times bring us, may we stay fast to this apostolic message displayed for us in the book of Acts and throughout the scripture and also demonstrated in powerful ways through church history. Lord, more personally, may every person here trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen.